Hey guys, Danny here, Editorial Director of Courier. You're listening to The Courier Weekly, a podcast all about working better and living smarter. This week, I'm with Courtney Boyd-Myers. Courtney is the founder of Akua, a food brand whose first and main product is kelp jerky, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Think of beef jerky, but instead of beef, it's made with nutrient-dense, high-protein, ocean-farmed, sustainable kelp. The product was named by Time magazine as an invention of the year. It was called a world-changing idea by Fast Company. It won praise by the likes of Richard Branson, who called it rather delightful and incredibly delicious. And yes, it tastes really good. It's hard to call something a miracle ingredient without sounding like a snake oil salesman, but kelp might actually fit the bill. It's a zero-input crop, meaning it doesn't require fresh water, fertilizer, feed, or arid land to grow. It also filters carbon and nitrogen from the water. It grows really fast, and there's a lot of it out there, and it's really, really good for you. Given all of that, Courtney's become something of a public evangelist for kelp. Since launching Akua in 2019, Courtney's released three product lines, kelp jerky, kelp pasta, and they're now making kelp burgers, which they're calling the most nutritious plant-based burger on the market today. I caught up with Courtney recently to hear how her journey's been so far and to find out why kelp is a food trend to watch in 2021. So I was always one of those weirdo kids at the beach, just like pulling seaweed out, throwing it at my friends, putting it in my mouth, eating it, like made seaweed salads on my own, like growing up. I just always loved seaweed. I also always loved the ocean, like wanted to be a mermaid after seeing the little mermaid, etc. Around the time I like turned the corner on 30, I started thinking a lot more seriously about climate change. And I think a lot of us did. And there's so many different solutions to climate change, but the one that I felt like was getting under my skin the most was around food systems. I grew up in a family where my dad, like God bless him, but he invented the Burger King Kids Club and Chester the Cheeto and like really worked and created so much of that momentum in the big food industry, worked for Pepsi, et cetera. And as a result, you know, we have like, massive devastation to land agriculture. And I don't mean as a result of my dad's work, but as a result of, you know, big factory farming, feeding, you know, a growing population of meat obsessed eaters. And then you, on the flip side of that, you know, that's planetary health. You have human health being completely destroyed, you know, diabetes, obesity, et cetera. And so I saw how broken this was and was really called on my like food and wellness journey at this point. And so started researching this concept of regenerative agriculture, which really is just this idea that it's one step beyond sustainable, but it actually leaves the soil better than it found it. And so my friend said, well, have you heard of regenerative aquaculture? And I was like, no, but that sounds amazing. And he's like, yeah, it's really close to where we grew up in Connecticut. Come visit this kelp farm up in New Haven. And it's also really next door to like the world's best pizza. And I was like, pizza, seaweed, I'm sold. So drove up to New Haven, put on a really thick wetsuit and dove in this kelp farm and ate seaweed uh, that had been grown off a rope. Straight from the ocean, just putting it in your mouth. Yeah. I also put like a raw scallop in my mouth this day. And that was, it was amazing. You know, it was just this, like this idea of farming in the ocean just was really cool. And, you know, kind of an extended beyond like just fish farming. So yeah, that was kind of my first brush with seaweed. I learned all about the environmental benefits of growing it, the health benefits of eating it, the economic benefits of the fishermen growing it. And I was totally hooked. And what year was that? 2016. So between then and 2019, when you first launched kelp jerky, you must have done a huge amount of 
research and development, finding suppliers, obviously all of the branding and design work. And so when did you say, right, this tasted great. This is a huge opportunity. It's good for the environment. I'm going to make a business. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's never just like one day you wake up and you're like, I'm going to start a business. I mean, maybe some people are like that, but for me, it just became an obsession and I started building a deck around it and a brand because those are my strengths. I started looking for other people that were equally obsessed with this idea of creating sustainable foods made of seaweed. And I met a chef in the East Village and this random finance dude reached out to me on LinkedIn. And then these two people became my co-founders and we didn't really, you know, have a business at that point. It was, you know, 2017, we were just sort of getting the team together and hosting these, you know, kelp tasting parties. And we'd basically be pulling people off the streets of the East Village, feeding them beer and seaweed, snacks and food and chips and dips and soups and, you know, teas and saying, what do you like? This was really just starting to become like a, just a big cash drain because I was spending money on like all of these events and it was like super fun and we weren't really thinking okay this is like a quit your job and start a business just yet and then we realized okay like maybe we shouldn't be spending like all of our own money on this business you know we started researching the industry at large and all of the awesome food companies that we knew because we were consumers we started saying "Well, well how did they build this And actually it's podcasts like How I Built This that have been amazing for just hearing those entrepreneurship stories. So yeah, it really took almost, you know, two years from really having those tasting parties in the East Village to saying, all right, like, you know, this product is now on a fully built website with a brand and you can buy it. And yeah, it was a a lot of learnings along the way and a lot of mistakes. What was the landscape like for kelp products at the time? Were you kind of the sole one in the wilderness raising your hand saying this is a thing? Or were there other ones in Whole Foods, for instance, or Trader Joe's that, you know, were like, ah, those are the ones we have to beat? Well, there's many kinds of entrepreneurs, but in my sort of growing up in the startup space, I have seen two defining ones characteristics wise. The first one is someone who's like myself, who sees something as an incredible opportunity because it's new, it's innovative, and it hasn't been done before. And they can be a market leader. And it's this total, you know, blue ocean strategy. And then there's the second class of entrepreneurs who I'm kind of jealous of because I find it super uninspiring, but they tend to make more money. And they see things that are already working really well, or at least there's consumer adoption, but they know that they can out-operate that first mover and build a sexier brand, you know, a faster go-to-market strategy, like, you know, a higher margin business, whatever it is. And you see so many examples of it. So people who just like find the flaws and models that already work and just make them a bit better, refine it. Totally. And so to answer your question, I'm like 100% that first entrepreneur, but I didn't realize that that was like a thing. I just thought like all entrepreneurs were like inventive. And I just thought, wow, this doesn't exist. So like I have to create it and went out there and did it. Where did you get your kelp from originally? Did you go shopping for, for kelp farmers? Yeah. So as we were doing product development and pulling people off the streets in the East Village, we were working to set up our supply chain because at this point, anyone who knew anything about how to start a food company was like, all right, well, that's cool. This is such a new industry. But like, as you scale, you're going to need a lot of kelp. Like, where can you buy that kelp from? And I was like, okay, good point. So we, you know, we basically went and just met a lot of farmers and built amazing relationships in the industry. So to back up a sec, like 
98% of the seaweed that you buy on the market today is sourced from Asia, Korea and China and Japan, mostly Korea and the United States. When we looked at like building the supply chain, we thought, well, that's silly. Like we want to build this 100% locally in the United States and specifically actually from the New England area. So we source 100% of our kelp today from ocean farmers in Maine. And where were those farmers sending their kelp to prior to you coming around? Was it like medicinal products or something or was it other food products? Honestly, this is like why our business has been in this a little bit of like a chicken and egg stage until now. So for the first few years, it was kind of like, all right, so there were farmers growing kelp before we got in there and they were selling into restaurants and they were trying to sell into food companies because those are the guys who will pay the most money. But a lot of them ended up selling it as fertilizer and kind of just getting rid of it and not making like a good income on it. And that's not how you grow a supply chain like this. So we really came in to like create that consumer market and demand. And now what's happened is like the farming side has grown so much. There's like more kelp than anyone knows what to do with. And it's really the consumer market now that needs to keep up. That's incredible, right? I mean, the fact that this sustainable, tasty product, which as you guys rightly point out on your site, you know, it's a zero input crop, doesn't need anything. It just grows, right? It's crazy. Like anything you or I have probably consumed today requires, you know, fresh water or dry land to grow or probably fertilizer or if you ate meat, feed. And kelp requires none of those things. It is a zero input crop. It really has a lot of potential as like a future food. You know, when we talk about like cricket bug companies and, you know, like thinking through like, how do we feed this growing population in an era of climate change? Like kelp is definitely one of the top solutions to do so because of the zero inputs. And it just keeps growing and growing and growing. I mean, I I read somewhere it grows like a foot and a half a a week or something. It's like a day. (laughs) You have like maybe 15 different species of kelp. And so kelp is a brown macroalgae and it's part of the algae kingdom. There's also microalgae like spirulina. And in the macroalgae kingdom, there's brown and there's red and there's green. And so a lot of people know the macroalgae nori, which is wrapped around your sushi. And so kelp is its own class. And there's like giant kelp, like what grows in California and, and out here in, in Cape Town where I am right now. And then what we grow is this uh, sugar kelp and it's very delicate and it's really tasty and it's like perfect for turning into food. And it grows very quickly, which is what makes it so good at converting carbon into energy. So it soaks up carbon from the water, just like a land-based plant uses photosynthesis on land to soak up carbon from the atmosphere and it turns it into oxygen, also while it's converting into energy that we then eat. So we are pulling carbon out of the ocean when we pull the kelp out um, to create the foods that we make. One thing that's really important to note is we farm all of our kelp, right? It's never wild harvested. We plant what we then, you know, will use in the spring. We plant it in the fall and we uh, take it out in the spring. and grows about six feet during the six months. So some of it can grow, like you just said, like, you know, over an inch a day. Ours grows a little bit slower than that, about 12 inches a month. <laughs> Which is still quite a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. I want to talk about the business model. I've been looking at your, because um, you guys are, are raising money right now and you kind of set out your entire model on this page. I know, it's crazy to be so transparent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. It's, I was like, oh, wow, I can see all the numbers. So you've raised you know, just about $200,000, which is a lot more than your minimum that you wanted to. But you're raising all of this money to, to launch your kelp burger. 
which we know each other because a Courier columnist, Colin Nagy, who people know, he wrote a piece about it in his newsletter, and he was like, oh, shit, this actually tasted absolutely delicious, and I didn't think it would because it's kelp, but actually it was like, it tasted like a delicious burger. How are you going to try to position that burger in and amongst the impossible burgers of the world? You know, is it a completely different category? Are you going head to head with those guys? You know, again, I like to create my own categories. (laughs) So (laughs) I see that the fake meat culture around Beyond and Impossible as being really positive for us because it's converted a large number of traditionally meat-based eaters into this idea that, okay, maybe I can get something as satiating from plant-based materials. But I think that there's going to be this real backlash against the beyonds and impossibles of the world, and you're actually already seeing it, where people are like, oh my God, this is really overly processed. Why am I eating chemicals? Yeah, they're not actually healthy. Exactly. They're not healthy. Don't sue me, but yeah, I mean, they're not as healthy as people think they are. (laughs) No, they're not. And I think it can be really confusing for consumers because they see something as plant-based and they think it's healthy. And I have a real problem with that. Again, it's just creating a new problem, really. Like, you know, all, if you look back since like the early 1900s, like food companies have just constantly been screwing us. (laughs) And it's like, I'm so tired of it. And I'm so tired of people like reaching for Beyond Meat and thinking they're doing a good thing because they're eating a Beyond Meat burger every day. Like it's a treat, have one once a week. But I wanted to create a burger that was as satiating as a meat burger, but wasn't going to trick you into thinking this is a cow or a pig because we're not about tricking people to Kua. We're trying to make the most sustainable form of food on the planet taste really good and using other plant-based ingredients and superfoods. So it's going to be a lot more satiating than a veggie burger, a traditional one, because it has the umami bomb of like kelp and mushrooms, but it's not going to be a beef burger. And so a lot of people eat it and they're like, this is the best vegan burger I've ever had and I don't miss the beef. And that for us is kind of like an in-between category and that's what we're creating. Do you think it'll ever get proper mainstream appeal? Because, you know, the average American, when you say, do you want to eat seaweed? They'd still kind of be like, "Eh." It's true. We were talking with the founder of a a pistachio nut milk brand the other week. And, you know, I was just saying education is a huge part of this. This is what it tastes like. It's not going to be whatever, icky in your coffee. I imagine kelp is the same, if not a lot more. Yeah. And I also like, I guess I live in a world where like, I just love pistachios. So for me, I'm like, yes, of course you should make milk out of pistachios. (laughs) So I think that's like a little bit easier when it comes to consumer adoption. With seaweed, a lot of people see it as like that stuff that gets caught around their surfboards or that gets dry and stinky on the beach or is underwater and they're freaked out about eating things from the ocean. There's so many layers of like fear and complexity you have to break through here. I think that when we look at like a market like mushrooms, we study that pretty hard because it's for us like a similar trajectory from like this very niche Asian superfood to really like more mass market adoption. If I had pulled you aside in the grocery store 10 years ago, you probably would have been like, oh, I can name like a couple mushrooms and now you can probably name like 10 or 12. And, you know, we've just, we've so much more knowledge of the fungi kingdom than we did 10 years ago. And I think seaweed's going to follow a really similar trajectory in the next 10 years. When you say mushrooms, do you mean kind of like the niche health mushroom brands like Four Sigmatic or just mushrooms at the supermarket that you pick up to put in your stir fry? I truly just mean, yeah, like knowing what the difference is between a shiitake and a lion's mane mushroom or like a chaga or a reishi or, you know, you can go on. But 
And I think today people don't, they're like, kelp, what is that? Oh, it's a seaweed. Okay. And like, that's it. But I think in 10 years, people are going to be like, oh, I know what dulce is and nori. And oh, you know, I know that kelp on the West Coast is different than the East Coast because these are underwater plants. Like the way you and I can, you know, say corn and tomatoes and squash, et cetera. So I think that there's there's an education to be done. It's, it'll be done by our company and many other seaweed-based companies that are coming online. Now, whether kelp gets mainstream, I, I think is like a is just really like a timing thing and also like cultural shift thing to more plant-based eating and, and needing more variety in the plant-based food diet. And if it does become mainstream and it just goes through the roof, as you pointed out already, there'll be a billion different farmers to meet that demand? Yeah, I mean, for us, there's... Basically, like we're, we're farming less than like 0.001% of the world's farmable waters. And it's just, there's so much potential. If we take that up to 0.05%, we will create 50 million new jobs around the world, according to the World Bank. And so, you know, when you hear companies gripe about, oh, the end of the dairy industry, that's 13 million jobs lost. Or, oh, fast food industry, if that ends, it's 1.3 million jobs lost. Like, who cares? You know, like, let's start an industry that's like actually regenerative, going to leave the planet better than we found it, creates a ton of new jobs. And that's just on the farming level. Not to mention processing and distribution and, you know, all the other things that are tied to that. So, yeah, I think it's the industry has a ton of potential. There's a lot of money going into it and a lot of smart people are attracted to it right now. How did you develop the business model? So I know you sell through supermarkets. You also sell direct to consumer on your website. You have distribution partners for the kelp burgers that you're going to try to roll out. It's a good question. Honestly, I never made a business model. <laughs> I think we've been asked several times. They're like, oh, can you send us your business model? And I assume they mean some like 50 page deck about how we're going to make money. And I was like, didn't do it. I knew that like how to sell products online because my background was in technology and startups. So we just like pretty early on for a food company started building out our Shopify website. I knew how to do performance marketing. So I just wanted to kind of bring customers in through Facebook ads and out through our Shopify. I wanted to see all their data, who they are, you know, where do they live? How do they find us? And so we were really lucky because when the pandemic hit in March, like we only lost like maybe like 10% of our business that was in like grocery stores and all those grocery stores, like I didn't go find them. They found us. And I was like, cool, here's a 40% off wholesale code you can use on our website. And so that's like how we built our wholesale business. We didn't use brokers or anything. I was just like, I built a wholesale portal on Shopify for them. You know, when March hit or April, it was like, yeah, sure. Like grocery stores weren't like, oh my God, I have to restock kelp jerky. Like <laughs> that wasn't their priority. <laughs> but like our actual e-commerce business doubled every single month during COVID. It was crazy. So the fact that we were set up for e-com and like, you know, out there, doing performance marketing was just hugely beneficial. And now I think obviously this is like so old school and, you know, retail or, you know, internet businesses, but I think food is just becoming a lot more keenly aware of how running an e-commerce business is actually so positive for your retail business because your consumers are going to see an ad, then they're going to be in the grocery store and they're going to buy it off the shelf. You know, might not be able to like directly track that very accurately. But like, I know brands who've turned off their performance marketing because they're focused on retail and their retail sales drop. Yeah, I haven't built a business model. We've kind of just figured it out along the way. But our business model is mostly direct to consumer and we will be pushing more into retail with frozen products next year. And why did you decide to raise money right now? 
And how did you decide to go about it in the way you've done it? Yeah. So, you know, when I was like, you know, spending a lot of my personal money putting this business together, a lot of people around me had been raising money for their tech companies for years. So, you know, I knew about venture capital. Yeah. I love doing decks. Like I I don't do like business models necessarily, but I love doing like decks. Like here's the story. Here's like, I guess one slide on the business model, how we're going to sell it and like, you know, et cetera. And so built that and just started asking for introductions and in about a year. It took a long time. Granted, I wasn't full-time on the business, but we raised about 500K in what you would call like a friends and founders round. Lots of food company founders put in like 25K, 30K checks, and they've been the most valuable investors ever. That was 2018. We closed that round. And then we went to raise a, a smaller round or actually we went out to raise a, a larger round in 2020 in February. And when the pandemic hit, it just made fundraising so hard. It was just a miserable experience asking people for money and when everyone's in crisis mode really and, and so unsure of the future. So hard meaning it was just awkward or they were just like, no, we don't have time for you right now? Well, I think like investors are trained to like always keep their options open. So like everyone took the call and it ended up just being this like very emotionally draining experience because they weren't like, oh no, we're like not interested, but they're just like, I mean, a lot of them just like weren't writing checks because they were just like, well, I, I don't know like what the world's going to be like in six months. Like this is unprecedented. And so by August, we hadn't raised any money. We'd raised 50K in February and then none until August. And then I was in a beef at a party and someone was like, I'll put in 15K. And I was like, Yes, we've just broken the seal. Let's go. And <laughs> As they were drunk. Yeah, basically. And so then we continued on to raise about like 250K in the months that followed, you know, through Zoom calls, much more professional. And it was also just hard, I think, on that note too, like when you're building relationships with investors, like it's so hard to do that over Zoom. Like you really want to be having a glass of wine with someone in person and like talking about your business and your vision and who you are. So we raised from some great people. And I guess this summer, Republic, which is the equity crowdfunding campaign we're, we're raising on right now, approached us and they were like, look, we know it's brutal out there with VCs and no one's really writing checks like they were last year. But everybody, for some reason, is putting money into our campaigns and we've grown like exponentially this year. So you should consider it. And I love crowdfunding. I love it, love it, love it. I love community-driven anything. And so, yeah, we launched like a month ago and it's just blown our expectations out of the water. It's been such a blast. Do you think all of that hustling and creating hype and you know getting out there and talking to people and using social as well is just as important as all the other stuff because you know you, you somehow got named as like you know one of fast companies world changing ideas you somehow got your kelp jerky into the hands of richard branson who gave you kind of a glowing review was that just you being like oh let's just do this let's get it out there because if you didn't do all that it would just would have been kind of quite quiet and oh look at that kelp jerky brand like oh isn't that nice but you've made it into this kind of a thing yeah look like i have so many faults as a CEO and founder, but like hustle is not one of them. <laughs> I'm like 99% hustle. And so, yeah, I mean, for me, it was like, I chased Richard Branson up an active volcano in the middle of a triathlon and he was super hungry and I made him try kelp jerky. We basically, you know, I think have been 
finding a lot of validation when it comes to like thought leaders, whether they're Richard Branson or it's Time Magazine. I think that what we're doing is not like a traditional business. Like we need so much validation because it's such an, an innovative new thing that, that people are a little unsure of. So media and PR comes in as really important for us. And I was a journalist for a long time. That's how I, I know our mutual friend Colin. So I love storytelling and I think it's such an important part of our brand too, you know, from just ocean imagery and mermaid loving and you know it's like it that's the fun part for me of building the business when you are looking back at your kind of last couple of years i know obviously you're still in the very early stages of the company but um what's a mistake you've made that you've learned from there's been so many i think the hardest part about building a food business and this might sound so obvious is actually making the food at scale and a lot of companies will start with like a kitchen benchtop recipe. Like our kitchen recipe for kelp jerky was like amazing. And I didn't realize how long it would take to take that recipe and make it, you know, 10,000 bags a day type of scale. And working with food manufacturers to do that is really hard because like they're not incentivized to do anything innovative. They're like, just want to make more bar companies and more chip companies because it's easy to scale and then they get paid based on volume. So yeah, I think it's, it's really brutal, especially not having any industry experience. So like anyone who wants to start a food company, I think like one of the mistakes that I made was not focusing enough on our operations and manufacturing. Like Truthfully, like a business, yes, it needs hustle, it needs storytelling, it needs brand building. But like, if you don't have operations, like the whole thing's going to implode. And your company is still quite small in terms of headcount. Yeah. I mean, we've been like so brutally like lean for two years. Basically, it's my co-founder and I and one employee. And we struggled so hard in our first year. You know, it was... So a team of three. Kind of. We've got like an army of consultants and advisors and always an army of interns. So and ambassadors. So there's like, there's a network. But when it comes to like the core team, it's three. Yeah. Looking ahead, obviously you're launching the Kelp Burger. What kind of company do you want Akua to be? Do you want to just keep launching products in the kelp space? Do you want to go beyond that and just become, you know, a, a broader health company, uh, you know, a company that makes products good for the environment, good for your body? Yeah, I mean, there is a reason that we're not called like the Kelp Co. You know, we wanted to build a company that looked at all sustainable foods as like potential ingredients for our food products. That being said, I think that like, you know, we are on this earth to bring sustainable sea greens to the mainstream. Looking through like what are the most sustainable ways to source sea greens? Ocean farming is really it right now. And the most ocean farmed seaweed in the United States is really kelp. So until there's like other sustainable sources of seaweed, we will be focused on kelp. And our mission is to put out every 18 months a new plant-based product. So looking through, you know, the, the forward thinking lens, we've got burgers coming out in Q1. And then after that, we'll look at like a kelp nuggets aimed at kids. I'm really excited about having like starfish and mermaid shaped kelp nuggets and then kelp crab cakes, kelp sausages, kelp meatballs, kelp breakfast sausages as well. Amazing. Kelp nuggets. I mean, God bless you. I mean, I'm sure they taste delicious too, but that's an education job for, you know, the parents to say to their kids, this is seaweed. Maybe they'll just say, just eat it and let us know what you think. 
Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about kids, actually. They've loved our kelp burger and they're kind of like, I don't know, mom. And they eat it and they love it. And I think putting it in fish shapes and stuff will really help too. Funny enough, like SpongeBob has kind of made like eating kelp really cool. So you have a lot of kids that are like obsessed with our company because of that. Smell a good collaboration coming up. I hope if anyone knows SpongeBob's team, please let me know. There's a kelp burger in there. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Courtney Boyd Myers from Akua for this week's episode. Get in touch with any comments or feedback or ideas or anything at all. I'm at Daniel at CurryMedia.co. Curry Weekly is going on a bit of a hiatus for the holidays, but we'll be back on the 8th of January with more weekly shows. I hope you guys have an awesome next few weeks, and we'll see you in the new year. <laughs>